<clears throat> we're starting a new series in something else uh, tonight that we're going to look at over the next uh, month or so, and we're going to be thinking about uh, prayer. But rather than be doing sort of different teaching on prayer, we're actually going to look at some uh, prayers and people who prayed in the Bible and look at how they prayed, what was going on, perhaps how God answered their prayers, and seeing what we can uh, learn from them. As you can imagine, uh, being a vicar, I've got lots of books on prayer. These are a few of them. I brought them along. Um, I've even read some of them. Um, This is a book full of prayers. This is a book about different traditions of praying. This is a book about different churches that pray. This is a good book about different spiritual disciplines and how we can pray. This is another book about a church that prays. This is a book about hearing God's voice in prayer. And this is a book about how to work prayer into your daily life. So fantastic. But the best book or the best advice I've ever had on prayer is actually from this book, which is a lot thinner and uh, much easier to read. It's very, very short. And it's also the oldest book. So this book dates back to um, the 6th century. And it's called The Rule of St. Benedict. And who Benedict was, was he was a monk, lived in the 6th century. And what he did, he was known for his prayer life. He was known for his spirituality. He was known as somebody who's very much in touch with God. And uh, other people gathered around him and they wanted um, him to teach them about prayer. And they wanted him to uh, guide them in becoming monks and nuns and that kind of stuff too. So what he did, he wrote a guide, or in those days was called a rule, uh, for them to organise their lives in terms of prayer. But not just prayer, their whole lives. So it's got, how many chapters has it got? It's got about 70 chapters. It covers everything you would ever need to know if you lived in the 6th century in some kind of community. It's got how to read the Psalms. It's got how, uh, what clothes you should wear. It's got what food you should eat. Uh, it's got what songs you should sing. It's got how much different people should have. Um, it's even got a chapter which is entitled, What to do when the monks are asked to do something impossible? Which I think is a fantastic title. <laughs> You have to read it to find out what you should do. One of the shortest chapters is the chapter on prayer, which you might imagine might be really, really long. Um, But this is what he writes when he's talking about prayer. Chapter 20, reverence at prayer. If we wish to ask a favour of those who hold power... We do not do so except with great humility and respect. It is far more important that we present our pleas to God with the utmost humility and pure devotion. We realise that we will be heard for our pure and sorrowful hearts, not for the numbers of our spoken words. Our prayer must be heartfelt and to the point. Only a divine inspiration should lengthen it. The prayer of the congregation should be short. When the leader rises, all should rise. That's it. That's his teaching on prayer. This great uh, man of prayer, this man who people came from miles around to uh, learn from. And I love this one sentence that's right in the heart of this. Our prayer must be heartfelt 
and to the point. Um, these books are great, and I've learned lots of stuff to, from them, but not many of them have the instruction that prayer should be heartfelt and to the point. And this says more in just a few words than these books say in many, many words. And I was reminded of these words when I read this passage again. And what we see here is Jesus at prayer. We're actually privileged to be in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus on the night that he's betrayed, the most stressful hour of his life, not long before he will head to a trial and then be crucified. We're privileged to have an insight into his prayer life. We're there when we see him wrestling with the greatest challenge that he will ever face. And we're able to listen in on his prayer too. I've just got a couple of very simple lessons for us tonight as we consider Jesus' prayer. They went to the place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter, James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. First thing I think to say about this prayer of Jesus is that this is a real prayer. In the words of St. Benedict, this is a heartfelt prayer. I can't imagine a more heartfelt prayer than this. Jesus is not praying because it's the time to pray. He's not praying because it's his routine to pray. He's not praying because it's come to that part of the service when he prays, or because it's his habit, or because it's how he's been brought up, or because it's his teaching. He's praying because he's greatly distressed and troubled. Sometimes be a little bit sniffy about prayer, and we can sometimes be a little bit, um, well, a little bit judgmental of those people who only seem to pray when things are going wrong. And obviously, the scriptures teach us to pray at all times. But we want to be careful that we don't adopt a, a kind of view that sort of says there's something wrong with praying when you're in trouble. There's something wrong about praying when you're upset, that it's somehow unspiritual. Jesus here is greatly distressed and troubled. In my version, it says his heart was sorrowful, even to death. I wonder if you have a picture of Jesus where he displays these human emotions. Sometimes our Jesus is a little bit like a superhero. Uh, goes around healing the sick, calming the, stores, the storms, um, uh, delivering those who are oppressed, uh, putting everything right that is wrong. 
wonder if that was how the disciples saw Jesus. Up until now, everything that Jesus has done has turned out right. The crowd come to throw him off a cliff and he walks uh, through them. They run out of food and Jesus provides more um, food. The storm's about to overwhelm the boat and Jesus calms it. Mother-in-law is sick and Jesus heals her. They're sent out on a mission. They don't know how it will uh, turn out and Jesus just tells them to pray and trust in him and everything goes well and they come back uh, rejoicing that even the evil powers are subject to his name. They've never seen Jesus fail. They've always seen him triumph. And suddenly, the wheels come off. Now their great master is deeply troubled. Now their saviour is greatly distressed. Now the one in whom they've put all their faith is sorrowful. If you've got that image of Jesus in your mind. I wonder if you ever think of Jesus in those ways. Jesus' prayer is heartfelt. And we can't always be heartfelt in our prayer. We're not always in that kind of emotional state. And there is a lot to be said for the discipline, or the routine of coming to God uh, regularly. But there's also nothing wrong with having emotion. And there's nothing wrong with coming to God uh, with your problems and your burdens. Jesus' prayer is heartfelt and Jesus' prayer is intimate. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. Preachers love to talk about Abba Father. It's one of those passages we come back to time and time again. It's there in Corinthians 2. His spirit cries within us, uh, Abba Father. Uh, It speaks of intimacy. It's the language a young child uses of his father. Uh, It speaks of the close relationship uh, that Jesus has with his heavenly father. It speaks of the close relationship that Christians uh, enjoy with our Heavenly Father. Jesus is not praying to a God he doesn't know. Jesus is talking to his dear, intimate Heavenly Father. Who he's in communion with every day, all day. Jesus' prayer life was such that he was always in the presence of his Father. The only time he was separated from him was when he bore uh, the burden of our sin upon the cross. And at that moment, Jesus cries, What, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' prayer is intimate because he's praying to the one whom he knows, who he loves, who he knows loves him, uh, cares for him. And Jesus asks that if it's possible, what's about to happen wouldn't happen.
right back at the beginning of this passage, verses uh, 26 through to 31. Jesus reveals that he's aware of what will happen. The shepherd is about to be struck, the sheep will be scattered, and then uh, days later he will be raised up. And he will meet them again in Galilee. And if you remember, it was on the seashore of uh, Galilee that Jesus uh, restored Peter. And he's speaking here about Peter's uh, denial of him. So Jesus isn't ignorant of what is about to happen. But he doesn't walk calmly, unaffected to the cross. And he prays this heartfelt, intimate prayer. And he makes a request to his heavenly Father. In fact, he doesn't make the request once. He makes it three times. Three times he prays to his Father. Three times he goes back to his friends, his disciples. Three times he finds them uh, sleeping. Three times he makes this request. If it's possible for this not to happen, if there's another way, please let it be so. But if there isn't another way, let it be according to your will. <coughs> will you do this for me, Father, who I love and who loves me? And the Father says, No. Have you ever realised that the Father answers this prayer with the word no? The Father says, no, this cup can't pass from you. No, there isn't another way. So Jesus walks the way of the cross. Any of you ever been at prayer? Bringing something before God that distresses you deeply? Looking for a way out of a situation that pains you? Looking for an answer to prayer? Some form of deliverance? Asking the Lord if there is any other way that something could pan out? And then having the sense that the Lord has said no? This is how it's going to be? I'm sure we've all been in that place. Sometimes over things that now we look back on and see were quite trivial. Sometimes over things that are vitally important. If the Father can and does say no to Jesus, then that says to me that there will be occasions when the Father will and can say no to us. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. And it doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. And it doesn't mean mean that our prayer has failed. And it doesn't mean that we're not doing the right thing. And it doesn't mean that we've sinned. It just means this is the way it's going to be. This wasn't an easy answer for Jesus to hear. Three times he goes back to his Father in heaven whom he loves, whom his presence enjoys, whom he can be open with and heartfelt with. And three times he gets the same answer. It doesn't say that that's the answer, but we can uh, assume or presume uh, that's the answer. 
Sometimes we need to go back to God again and again and again. Sometimes we need to wrestle things through with him. And one of the things that we'll look at over this uh, series is how different uh, characters in the Bible have uh, wrestled with God. The third element, not really element of this prayer, but the thing that we can take from this prayer is the place where Jesus ends up. He came to them a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Through this prayer, Jesus comes to a place of surrender comes to a place where he accepts what the Father's will is. And there's almost a sense here, or at least I I read it this way, that Jesus says, okay, now we need to go. Now's the time where we move this story forward. Now's the time for the next chapter. After wrestling, after speaking to God, pouring his heart out to God, hearing God's very hard, very difficult answer, Jesus comes to a place of surrender, a place of acceptance, a place where he says, okay, if this is how it's going to be, I'm going to follow through with what you're calling me to do. Then he goes and rouses those useless disciples. I I can't imagine them actually kicking them awake. Um, Maybe that's just my mind, but that's, that's how I see it. Gets them on their feet and they go to face uh, what must be faced. Judas comes, uh, there's men, the crowd with swords and clubs and uh, the story goes on and over this next uh, Easter period uh, we'll rehearse uh, the story again. For all of us, I'm sure there will be times of surrender. Not easy, not straightforward, not something that's just done once and for all and that's it and we move on a place we come back to again and again and again. But this is part of what being a Christian is. This is part of what walking in the way of the cross is, which is how Jesus uh, described being one of his followers. If you would come after me, you need to carry your cross. You need to walk the same walk uh, that I walk. If Jesus wrestled with uh, surrendering his will and his life to his heavenly Father, how much more so uh, will we too? Not easy, but necessary if we're going to move forward uh, with God. I want to just uh, talk briefly about uh, two people who uh, surrendered their life to God and what that looked like. The first one uh, is somebody called uh, Miguel Pro. If you could see him, please. Okay. Miguel was a priest, he was a a Mexican priest, Uh, lived uh, early in the last century, uh, sort of uh, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and in 1926 there was a revolution in Mexico. Uh, The government there was uh, very, uh, very secular, uh, very against the Catholic Church and some very uh, strict and anti-church, uh, but anti-Christian, but particularly anti-Catholic uh, 
uh, laws were passed. Uh, priests weren't allowed to wear their robes. They weren't allowed to uh, hold services. Uh, huge restrictions were placed upon the church. And there was a real um, attempt to stifle the church and to stamp out uh, Christianity. Uh, Miguel was a, a young priest. He was something of a, of a teacher, loved the people. They were loved, he was loved by them. And uh, a revolution started. And it started amongst the poor and it started amongst uh, ordinary Catholics uh, rebelling against the army and against the government. And uh, their cry was Cristo Rey, which is, I think it's Spanish or Mexican, for Christ is King. And uh, many of the priests um, went with the rebellion, but they didn't take up arms, but they uh, ministered to the, to the rebels. Miguel was uh, a pacifist, but he was uh, captured. He went through a, a show trial, and um, the president of the time decided to make an example of him, and he ordered uh, his execution. And not only did, did he do that, but he had his execution photographed and printed in all the newspapers, and the aim was to intimidate uh, the ordinary people. Just read what happens. Uh, Father Pro and his brothers were visited by the generals around 11 o'clock on November the 22nd, 1927. The next day, as Father Pro walked from his cell to the courtyard and the firing squad, he blessed the soldiers, knelt and prayed briefly. Declining a blindfold, he faced his executioners. We've got a photograph of that moment. Could we see that, please? There we go. He held a crucifix in one hand and a rosary in the other, and he held out his arms in imitation of the crucified Christ, and he shouted out, May God have mercy on you. May God bless you. The Lord knows that I am innocent. With all my heart, I forgive my enemies. Before the firing squad were ordered to shoot, Pro raised his arms in imitation of Christ and shouted the defiant uh, cry of the revolutionaries. Viva Cristo Rey! Long live Christ the King! The firing squad fired. That's one very, very dramatic example of what it means to live a life of surrender. I can't imagine anything more uh, dramatic than that, but it shows very vividly uh, what it means to say, not my will, uh, but your will. One a bit more like the situations that we face. This is a story of a young man called uh, Judson. Justin was raised in a Christian home. At age 17, he became a Christian. He went to university and graduated with a degree in art. He was employed successfully as a teacher and an administrator of high school art. He travelled widely, visiting the art galleries throughout Europe. He also studied and taught music. He mastered 13 different instruments, sang and composed music. He was eventually uh, very involved in the music ministry of his church. 
and he found himself torn between his successful teaching career and his desire to be a part of an evangelistic team. This struggle within him lasted for almost five years. In 1896, he was conducting the music of a church event. It was during these meetings that he finally became fully surrendered to God. He made the decision to become a full-time evangelist. He submitted completely to the will of his Lord, and a song was born in his heart. Uh, We sing that song here at St. Giles. We're going to sing it after we've shared uh, communion together, and it's called, I Surrender All. The key thing is, not that he became a full-time evangelist. He could have surrendered all and been a full-time teacher. It's the fact that he surrendered all and followed the Lord's will for his life. Final passage I'm going to read to you. This time... Uh, It's from somebody called Tom Wright, who's a a bishop. He writes this on this passage from Mark's uh, Gospel. This story of Jesus in Gethsemane invites us to stop and to ponder. Are we like the disciples, full of bluster one minute, sleep the next, and confused the next? Are we ready to betray Jesus if it suits our other plans? Or if he fails to live up to our expectations? Or are we prepared to keep watch with him in the garden, sharing his anguished prayer? We're not called to repeat his unique moment of suffering. He went through that alone on behalf of all of us. But if Christian writers from the very beginning have seen, it's part of the normal Christian experience that we too should be prepared to agonise in prayer as we await our own complete redemption and that of all creation. The church is called to live in the middle of this great scene, surrounded by confusion, false false loyalty, direct attack and traitor's kisses. Those who name the name of Christ must stay in the garden with him until the Father's will is done. Let's pray. Father, we pray for ourselves and we pray for one another. We pray that you would teach us what it means to pray. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to get beyond uh, techniques and uh, books and courses and strategies and to just become people of prayer. People who bring our heartfelt needs to you. People who come to you when we're sorrowful and when we're joyful. When we rejoice in your plans for us And when we find it hard, when you say no. Lord, teach us to pray to you, our Abba Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.